still practice at six foot distance, but come on, 20 feet? <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, that's all right. That's okay. Open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're coming to the conclusion of Paul's letter to the people in Philippi. I've uh, been known to call them the Philippines, and uh, they're not. <laughs> and, uh, and so open up your Bibles and pull out your outlines. We're going to go over a few things this morning. Amen. Before we do, I'd like to uh, open up uh, and uh, remember those that are not with us today and any, any prayer requests or concerns that you may have. Uh, and before we do that, anybody have a, I'd like to lift up to you right now, or lift up to the Lord, excuse me, uh, Richard Nylene. Uh, his, his mother passed away last night, so just found that out this morning. And um, we just keep him in prayer. Anybody else, any other prayer requests that we may have? Yes, hi Martha. Romero's family. Okay. And just let them know that we are praying for them and uh, we are here for them if they'd like as well. Anyone else? Okay. James. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Well, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read... Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. We'll go to the Lord in prayer and uh, lift these petitions up at the same time uh, after we read our words. So if you, you can open up your Bibles, I hope you have it there already, and stand with me with, for the, the reading of God's Word and in prayer and approaching the Lord this morning. <clears throat> in my Bible, I have the English Standard Version. In my Bible, it has the caption right above verse 10, God's provision. And Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of scripture that you bring us to today. And I know, Lord, that you are uh, showing us the Apostle Paul's life and uh, an example, as he has said, that we should follow. We should follow his example as he follows your example. And I pray, Father, that as we've learned through this book, uh, this letter that he's written to the people in Philippi, that we too can learn how not to be anxious, that other people can follow in our example, that we too can learn how to be content, that we too can be more like you, Lord, that we too can understand who you are and how you, you work in our life, and that other people would be led to follow our example as we follow your example. Lord, we are far from perfect. Paul even said it himself. Not that he's attained this perfection, not that he's even gotten there yet, but one thing we do is we press on toward the goal, which is in heaven, Christ Jesus. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that this word will help us to grow a little more in not only in knowledge and information, but in transformation, so that we become more like Christ. I pray for those that are not with us today, and I pray for Richard and Eileen, and I know that losing a, a loved one, his mom, is, is just terrible, difficult, on top of all the loss they've already experienced just this last year. And it's, I pray, Father, your peace and your comfort upon them. And I know that it is, it's not something that you can get over. It's just something you have to get through. And Father, I pray you bring people around them that can minister to them and help them in their time of need. We also lift up to you uh, the Ramirez family that uh, has an issue at this time. And I know that Martha's praying for them as well. Lord, help them know that we are here to minister to them too. Pray for James and his family and uh, his children and grandchildren and just the many difficulties that, uh, that we go through raising our children and our grandchildren and the pain and suffering that we see them go through that it brings to us as well. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing upon them and your favor for James and his family. So, Lord, as we, as we bow before you in this word, I pray that you open it up and show us uh, what Paul had intended first and foremost and how it can apply to us and help us, help us to be as, as honest and as uh, used with integrity, your word. In, in its context, I pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. amen. You may be seated. Amen. Sebastian's with us today, huh? All right. That's cool. <laughs> Learning to be content. This is a very important lesson. If you remember last week, we talked about uh, don't be anxious about anything. As a matter of fact, that was the very first thing that Paul says to us um, when, when we talked about that last week in verse 6. Do not 
be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We talked about worry last week, and we saw how Jesus Christ gave us a beautiful example of the birds and the lilies, and how it's unnatural to worry. It's unchristian to worry. It's unhelpful to worry. It's just worry is just, you know, it's a lot of doing without, you know, a lot of stewing without doing anything. Worrying about something, you know, we're worrying about tomorrow. We're trying to control tomorrow, and we're worrying about the past because we can't change the past. All that does is mess up our today. And Jesus had it right, hit it right on the nose. Paul goes back to this portion of Scripture when he says, don't be anxious about anything. The message that I preached last week, I pretty much know it pretty well because I've preached it quite a bit, not uh, in the recent past, but there's been times. And the reason I've gone, uh, gone there is because as we have gone systematically through the Scriptures, that's one thing that keeps popping up. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not fear. And it's like God is constantly trying to remind us that we need to focus on him. At the end of the message last week and what Jesus said himself, he says, he says, what you need to do is not worry, but worship, focus on God's kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So we don't have room to worship when we worry. Worry takes the place in our mind and allows nothing else to go in there. One of the things I didn't mention last week, or I don't know, I might have, you know, but worry is negative thinking on what you're doing. Worry is negative thinking on what's happening today. Worship is thinking positively on God. This is not a mind control type of thing or a mind alteration type of thing. This is actual worship. And Paul showed us on how to worship. He says, whatever is true, we're looking at verse 8 right now. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if any of these things, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what Paul says. Think about those things. Focus on those things. Focus on the things that the Word of God tells you. Because when you worship, you have no time to worry. As a matter of fact, when you worship, all those things that you're worried about are going to take care of themselves. You can't control tomorrow. You can't change the past. All it does is mess up your right now. And so with that in mind, Paul comes out and he says, I rejoice. And he's, he's really excited about what just took place. And it's not like it just took place. He's responding to the gift that was sent to him from the people in Philippi. And he's in Rome. Remember, he's in prison. Remember, and he's shackled to a guard. And, and, and this letter, uh, the, the book of Philippians, has been called the letter of joy. And Paul, in, in, all right, in his all right mind, he had no reason to be joyful. He had no reason because he was in prison. That's probably where you and I would be uh, scared and crying and worried and calling and, you know, put some money on my books type of a thing, you know. And, uh, okay, well, I mean, I've heard that you can do that. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, you want visitation, you want people to come and, and, you know, but Paul is joyful. This letter has been known as the letter of joy. That's why we entitled this whole series as joy in the darkness because Paul it didn't matter where he was at didn't matter where he was going he was happy and excited and he was he wasn't excited because it gave him the gift and the gift that he received he wasn't excited for that but he was excited more for the people that sent the gift and as we'll see right now Paul says I rejoiced in the Lord greatly and this now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity and as Paul is concluding his letter to the Philippians, you know, the, con- the congregation that he's talking to, he had a special relationship with them because they helped him quite a bit. After he founded that church, this is probably 10 years after that he founded that church, that he's in prison now. But in the process of his ministry journey, they kept sending him gifts and they kept sending him uh, love offerings. And, and Paul really didn't need it because he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. I, I can keep going. I can. And, and so in the the back of his mind as he's writing this letter and he's, he's reflecting on life and he's seeing, you know, I, I have been well prepared since a youth. God raised me up in, in the studies of the word and the, the encounter that I had with Jesus Christ and, and that testimony that he gave about that encounter with Jesus and, and how Jesus just opened up the scriptures to him and how he was able to proclaim that. And all the riches that he had, he says, I count them as rubbish. I count that all that stuff is just stuff. And the word that he used was the word rubbish was dung. I count it all as dung. It was nothing compared to the riches in Jesus Christ. And so he learned from a high 
perch, a high altar that he was in. He was one of the biggest Pharisees, one of the greatest, next to be the high priest. He had everything, the, 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 the prominence, the position, the power, the possessions. He had everything that he could ever want. And he says, man, I, I just got rid of all that. If anybody's going to brag, Paul said, remember this, if anybody's going to brag, I can brag. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrew, circumcised on the eighth day. As, as far as the law, man, I knew the law. I knew it perfectly. As zeal, I persecuted the church. You know, if anybody's going to brag, it should be me. But I threw all of that away. And I am content. I am happy. And I believe that contentment is one of the things that this world is looking for. Everybody wants to be in peace. Everybody wants to have this perfect peace in their heart, in their mind. And it's difficult to find that perfect peace with all the turmoil going on in our world. And this is why I, th I believe that this message is probably one of the most important ones, as last week was, as every lesson is, really. When we understand in the situation that we're in, we understand that God is in control. Amen? Paul knew how to rejoice in every circumstance. He did. He knew how to be free from anxiety and from worry because his heart was guarded by the peace of God. And the peace of God is a peace that the world does not give you. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives you. The peace of God is a peace that surpasses all understanding that Paul mentioned to us back in Ephesians. It's a peace that, that just, it's complete, it's whole. It's, it's more than just absence of war as we see it today. It's more than just absence of this anger and everything else that's going on. This peace that God gives can put you through and push you through anything if you would just submit to what Paul himself had submitted to, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Contentment is not complacency. Contentment is, is, is it's more than just the, the, the peace based on ignorance. In other words, I don't want to know. You know if, if I don't know, uh, then it's okay. Contentment and, and, and complacency are not the same thing. I don't just put up with stuff. You know, okay, I'm just going to put up because this is where I'm at, so woe is me. There's this, there's, this, there's this understanding of being content, and we'll explain that here in just a little bit. But in order to understand contentment, number one, in your outlines, the very first thing that we have to do is we need to understand the providence of God. We need to understand the providence of God. Providence comes from the Latin word. It's actually two words, pro, meaning before, and video, meaning video or see. That's where we get our word video from, to see. Before, to see, to be able to see all that is going to be uh, put out there. God has us on this huge DVD or what do you, I don't know, MP3, I don't know what you want to call it. He has us on this huge video screen and he sees everything from beginning to end. And providence is not only being able to see, but to orchestrate and to manipulate, not manipulate, but to work things in order to be able to get his will and purpose accomplished. And so providence is basically means that God sees everything beforehand and he knows everything beforehand. And because providence involves more than that, it is the working of God in advance to arrange circumstances and situations for the fulfilling of his purpose. Every time I ask people, how are you doing? Oh, under the circumstances, I'm doing all right. Really? What are you doing under the circumstances? You know, being under the circumstances is kind of like being under a mattress. It is suffocating when you're living under the circumstances. What are you doing? You should be above the circumstances. Do not be under the circumstances because the circumstances in your life, God is orchestrating because he sees, he's got this providence, he understands, and he's orchestrating everything to, for his will, for his glory. Remember the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. We know that word, but this is how many of us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, you know, my kingdom is kind of important here, Lord, and, and, and my will is kind of important here. I, I want you to align, you know, get over here and do what I'm doing. Align your will with me. Bless me, help me. Move me, whatever the case, move mountains for me, because this is where I'm going, Lord. And God's saying, I'm doing something over here. And what prayer has taught us is to align our will with God's will. That's what prayer has taught us. Why pray if God already knows what we want? Because God wants you to align your will with his will. And most prayers are, God, align your will. It's my kingdom. It's my will. Come on over here, Lord. Bless what I'm doing. And what we ought to do is we ought to do what God is blessing. And so when we understand that these circumstances, all these things, Paul had been gone for some time and, and he was just excited. He says, you know, I, I, I'm, 
I'm glad that you finally had the opportunity. As a matter of fact, he uses a word here that's only used here. It's not used anywhere else. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The word revive. You see, it's not that Paul needed the gift. It's not that Paul needed the attention. But what it did is it revived in them. The word revived is a horticulture term. In other words, it's a, it's a word that's used as a, when you're planting and, and sowing. There, there are some plants that go dormant during the winter. You'll see this. And when they go dormant during the winter, the, the frost comes and it seems like it's already killed it and it's dead and, and it's cold. And, but, but what happens is this word that Paul is using, it gets revived when the sun starts to come out, as the snow melts and the water irrigates the plant and the sun causes the photosynthesis to, to just develop and to grow these, these buds and from the buds to fruit and from fruit to, to this tree. And Paul says, you know, this concern that you had for me was revived because you understand that I'm in prison. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you were revived for that. Not, and he goes on to say, we'll see this here just a little bit. You can see this with me in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, I mean, right away, he says, not, not that I needed it, but I'm really jazzed. I'm really excited that you were revived in that sense. And he says, you know, and, and you gave out of your heart. You gave because your concern. You gave because of your love. You see, you can give without loving. You'll probably express that here in a couple of months during Christmas. You'll give gifts to people because they gave you a gift. Right? You give a white elephant, you go to work, everybody's passing, okay, well, I have to buy, I have to buy a gift. And you'll give, not necessarily out of love, but you know what, beloved? You cannot love without giving. See, when you love, you will give. You will give generously, and I'm not talking financially, I'm talking about your time. You will give because you love that person. And these people love their pastor. And he says, you know, Paul, we, we, we know you don't need it. Or maybe you do. We don't know. But we're going to send you this gift. And it's been revived in us. God has, God has melted the snow from our hearts. And we haven't been able to, for whatever reason, Paul doesn't say, but they haven't been able to. And we want to now just to bless you with what we can. Out of their poverty, out of their, their, what they didn't have. Paul says, I, I, am, I am just excited that you guys even took that opportunity to do so. See, and so... God is the one working all things together. God is the one causing all things together. Providence and miracle are two ways that God works in this world. He works either through a miracle or through a providence. And it's very, I think, disheartening and kind of somewhat discouraging that we as a Christian community have taken just about anything and everything that doesn't make sense or that kind of just happens as a miracle. You know, I'm in Costco and it's packed. They're building a new gas station there. They took away a lot of parking spots. And all of a sudden, somebody pulls out and right in front of me, and people would say, so it's a miracle. I got a parking spot. Or, you know, maybe something happens to a person that, that is somehow explained because they, they got healed, their back got healed, or they, they don't no, lo- no longer have cancer. We call that a miracle. You know, I don't know if that's a miracle or not. You know, we, there, there are a lot of things that we call miracles that really, see, a supernatural miracle is this. And Jesus did miracles and he called them signs as a matter of fact in uh, John a miracle is if a person is physically dead by all intended purposes dead embalmed like Lazarus three days in the tomb embalmed already wrapped in a in in the swaddling closet they would put around him already wrapped as a mummy and Jesus calls him forth as a matter of fact his sister Martha says Lord (laughs) you know don't open up the tomb you know, he's, by now it's been four days. You know, the, the translation is, and he stinketh. You know, you don't want to open that tomb up right now. But Jesus called forth Lazarus. And you know, it's, this is something interesting that you need to kind of put in the back of your mind here. Why did he call out Lazarus? Because if he would have said, come forth, everybody would have come out. That's how powerful his voice is. He had to identify Lazarus. And the Bible says that he walked out mummified or with the wraps around him. And they says, untangle him. Let him loose. That, beloved, is a miracle. Another miracle is this man, paraplegic, crippled. Crippled to the point where he couldn't even stand up and walk. Jesus says, stand up and walk. And right there he got up and he started walking. The Pharisee says, hey, how'd you do that? Some guy. What guy? I don't know. You know, all I know is that he touched me and now look at me. A miracle, if you know my daughter, would be that if she were to walk into this room and she would say, hi, everybody, how are you guys doing? Thank you guys for praying for me. And if you know her, you know she can't do that. You know that she, is, uh, she was born 
or with the condition that has stopped her, her metal growth. A miracle would be that she would just be as cognizant and as able to carry on a conversation with you and I as I am with you and you are with me. That would be a miracle. You see, something supernatural is a miracle. And a lot of the things that God does in this world, that's one way. And I'm not saying that God doesn't do those miracles. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that everything that we call a miracle is not necessarily a miracle. A lot of times it's providence. See, God foresees and he sees the future and he's moving things and he's causing things to happen or he's causing things not to happen. He doesn't want those things to happen because he's going to do something bigger and greater. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It doesn't say some things. It doesn't say, you know, maybe, maybe for him and not for you. Only for those that are saved and not for those that aren't saved. No, he works all things. Matter of fact, Romans 8.28 tells us that we know that for those who love God, not just everybody, but those who love God, all things worked together for good. Not that they're good. Not that everything that he works is good, but he works them for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Providence and miracle are the ways that God puts things together and, and, and he causes things to happen. He stops things to happen. And, and as a matter of fact, there are a lot of things that we think we're doing. Solomon kind of shoots that down when Proverbs 16:9 he says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. So are we slaves? Excuse me, are we robots? No, we're slaves. Are we robots? Just, you know, mind going, no, no, we're slaves. And we're obedient to our master. You know, God doesn't just do things out of willy-nilly. There's a purpose behind it. In Genesis chapter 37, I think, 38, 39, yeah, from, from about the chapter 40 on all the way to 50, about 15 verses, 15 chapters, there's a story of a man named Joseph. Joseph was one of the younger sons. Joseph was a dreamer. Joseph was a tattletale. <laughs> Joseph was hated by his brothers. Joseph one day wakes up and says, hey, I had a dream. He says, really? Yeah. I, I had a dream that we were out and, uh, and, and all the sheaves, all the bales of hay that we wrapped around and stood up, they, they were all around me. You guys, There was 12 of them. And, and there was 12 of them. And I stood there and all 12 of those wrapped around sheaves, they all bowed before me. And they got mad at him. What are you trying to say? That we're going to be bound? Before? You're, you're, the, you're the runt of the family. Get out of here. Next day, he has another dream. I had a dream that all the stars and the moons, 12 stars and, 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 the, two, and the moon and the sun, you know, they all bowed before me. And then his dad got mad at him. What are you trying to say that we're going to bow before you? You know, stop having these silly dreams. It's not going to happen. You know, you're the youngest of the family. One day his brothers go out and tend the sheep. And they left the brother at home. And the dad says, go and check out there on your brothers. Go bring me a report. Because he knew he was going to bring a report. From a long distance, they see Joseph coming. Oh, here comes that dreamer. You know, <laughs> you know what, what am I going to do? And what, what uh, no, Papa, you can't come up here. Grandpa, <laughs> not right now. We'll come talk to you later, okay? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so they see him coming. They go, look, they come, let's get rid of him. Let's just tear him up. Let's kill him, and, and, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do something with him. And we'll rub blood all over his coat and tell his dad that, you know, that he died. And the oldest brother says, no, we can't do that. Reuben says, we can't do that to our brother. So what they did instead is they threw him in a pit. We'll throw him in a pit, and we'll, we'll do something with him. And, and then they, there was a caravan that was coming, and Reuben says, don't kill him, please, whatever you do. And he takes off. The other brother saw a caravan coming, going into Egypt. And they said, let's do this. Let's just sell him into slavery. We'll kill a goat, rub blood all over it, and tell dad that a wild animal got a hold of him. They sold him into slavery. There he goes. The father was so depressed because that was his son. He loved his son. The coat was all ripped to shreds, full of blood. A wild animal must have eaten him. Dad, when you sent them to come see us, something must have happened. In Egypt, he was sold into slavery. And a, a, a master named Potiphar, uh, one of the, the treasures of, the, of Egypt, says, you know what? I, I need a good slave, and I like this guy. And God found favor on him. And in Potiphar's house, he became the top ruling slave. He handled all the businesses. God had favor upon him, and he was able to handle everything going on. And nothing was denied him, the Bible says, except for Potiphar's wife. And boy, did she want, Potiphar, did she want Joseph. And she went after him. And he says, no, I can't. You're my master's wife. I can't do that. She went after him every day, every day. One day while he's in the house by himself, she comes up. She grabs him. Look, you're going to go with me. And we are going to have a relationship. And he got, he got scared. and He ran off. And she was holding on to the cloak in embarrassment. She called out to the slaves and everybody else. Look, he tried to take advantage of me. 
Potiphar threw him in prison, and he was in prison for at least a couple of years. And in prison, these two guys, a cupbearer and a baker, they had dreams. And these dreams, you see, and, and the dreams that they had, they were so distressed. They says, I, I don't know what, what, what happened. Well, he asked the cupbearer, well, what did you dream? Because only God can interpret dreams. He says, well, I had this dream of these three vines that came out, and these three vines had a lot of grapes on them. And I grabbed the grapes, and I crushed them, and I poured it into the cup of Pharaoh, and I gave it to Pharaoh. And I don't know what that means. Joseph says, well, the three vines is three days. And in three days, guess what? Pharaoh's going to call for you, and you're going to go up there, and you're going to be handing Pharaoh his wine. You're going to be restored back to your rightful place. Well, the baker says, well, hey, I had a dream too, but it disturbed me. What was your dream? He says, well, I had a dream that there was these three baskets of bread on my head. And these three baskets that were on my head, the birds came and started eating the bread on the top. And he says, well, for you, it's the same thing. It's going to be in three days. In three days, Pharaoh's going to ask for you to come up, and you're going to start serving him. He's going to get mad at you. He's going to kill you. And in three days, it was Pharaoh's birthday. He called for all the servants to come up and help him, and that's exactly what happened. The first guy, the cupbearer, gave Pharaoh the cup, and he was pleased with him. The baker, he wasn't pleased with him, and he killed him, just like he said. Joseph's condition... Not a condition, but he, he said to them, look, guys, when you get to Pharaoh, let him know what happened. Tell him, talk to him about me. Sometime later, Pharaoh had a dream, a very disturbing dream. He had a dream of these seven cows that came out of the, the river, Nile, and it was, they were fatted calves. They were good calves. And then these skinny, bony, scrawny little cows on the, on the banks came by and ate those seven cows. And he woke up and says, my God, what does that mean? Again, he had another dream of these heads of grain that were nice and plump. And then there was these seven grains that were nice and plump. They came and ate the, excuse me, scrawny and dried up. And they came and they ate up the plump grains of head. Pharaoh wakes up again and says, I, I can't understand what that means. He's calling everybody. Tell him, interpret the dream for me. Interpret the dream for me. And at last, the cupbearer says, oh, you know, there's a guy in prison that told me everything that was going to come true about my dream. And it came true. Well, bring him on. Joseph stands before Pharaoh, hears the dream, and he says, well, here's what the dream means, Pharaoh. He says, you're going to have seven years of plentiful, and it's going to be an abundant year. Every year for seven years, you're going to have a lot. And after those seven years, then there's going to be seven years of famine, and it's all going to be wiped away. So my suggestion to you, Pharaoh, is that in those seven years of abundance that you prepare and you set it aside, and you put it aside and you save it so when the famine comes, you will have plenty to share and to sell. And you will become a rich man in all the land. And it happened. And, and uh, Pharaoh says, well, you know, who should I pick? And everybody says, well, pick Joseph. He seems to know what's going on. He became Pharaoh's right-hand man, Joseph, a Hebrew. And exactly what he said took place. Seven years of abundance came by. They stored it all up. Seven years of famine. And everybody was starving around the land. Joseph's brothers and his dad says, look, we have nothing to eat. Go to Egypt. I understand that there's somebody there selling, you know, they're selling grain. Go to Egypt. The brothers show up. And Pharaoh, uh, excuse me, Joseph now looks more like an Egyptian. You know, I don't know, probably had the mascara on, the little ponytail, bald head. They didn't recognize him. This is 20 years later almost. He was, 30, he was 17 when he was sold into captivity. This is uh, 30, 37 years later. So, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was about 20 years later. And so, so here the brothers show up. And they are looking, they're bowing down, and Joseph recognizes them. He says, you know what, you guys are spies. He started messing. You guys are spies. You guys are spying the land. No, 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 we're not. We're humble servants. All we want is grain. Nah, I don't believe you guys. You guys are spies. He says, you know what, how many brothers do you have? Well, we have one, but, you know, a younger one, Benjamin. But, but you know, we had another one, but he died. Really, what happened to him? Well, we don't know. He just, you really don't know. You guys are spies. Go bring me your younger brother so that we can settle this issue. And they were scared. And so they, he kept them in captivity in the prison for three days. They took off and they told their dad what happened. His dad was mad and sad. And my God, I've lost one. I lost another. Go get them. They brought the younger son. They came. Long story short, you know, Joseph just kept messing with them. And every time he looked at them, he'd just ball up and want to cry. And he'd go to the back room and cry out of joy. And then finally he had them all together. He put them all together and he says, look, it's me, your brother, Joseph. And they all looked up and they go, oh, my God, he's going to kill us. And he started to cry and weep, and they hugged each other. And here's what Joseph said. And here is the promise that you need to understand. And I'd like for you to memorize this portion of Scripture with that story. Go back and read the story. It's got a lot more information. But in your outlines, in Genesis 50, verse 20, this is what Joseph said. 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 20, 30 years later, what God is doing in your life right now through his providence is going to take effect maybe tomorrow, maybe next year. You know, it could be 20. You don't even know. And God used an evil king, Pharaoh. He used an evil system, uh, you know, the prison system. He used an evil woman, uh, Potiphar's wife. He used wicked brothers like his brother. He used all this adversity to be able to get Joseph to the point of where he wanted him to be. See, God, there's people out there that are wanting to hurt you. They mean it evil against you. But when you understand the providence of God, and you are secured in the fact that he has saved you. And all these things that God is moving. And, and you might be thinking, why are these things happening? Why is all this happening to me in my life? And one of the things that you, you know, even if God were to say to you, you know, well, okay. You know what, Sal, James, you know, you know what, let, let, me just, let me just share with you. See, about, about 20 years ago, I did this. And in about another 12 years, I'm going to do this. And this is all that's going to happen. You know, and you're just part of that, of what I'm doing in your life. Even if God were to come up and share that with you, beloved, you still, it still wouldn't make sense. But why, Lord? <laughs> you know, just trust in God's providence. He is pro the deo. He is looking ahead. He's got something in store for this planet, for this world. And we know what that is. He's orchestrating everything. For the coming of Jesus Christ. And as Joseph had said, he says, as for you, this world, the system, the boss, whatever it might be, you, you pin, pinpoint that person, you, you meant evil against me. Could it be a, a spouse, a friend that means evil against you, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. There are many people because of what God is doing in your life that he's going to bring it about. And he's going to do it through you. Trust in the providence of God. Number two, understand the provisions of God. Understand the provisions of God. You, you see, in, in Paul's life, he had things coming, all kinds of things that were happening. And Paul automatically says, not that I have, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. See, I'm content in whatever happens. I have learned this. The Greek word content, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a very, it, it's an extra biblical word uh, for the Greeks. It's not a biblical word in a sense, but the Greeks had this saying of content, be content. In other words, live without nothing. You know, be self-sufficient and don't depend on anybody. Be to the point of understanding that it doesn't matter what you have or don't have, that God is going, or the gods are going to take care of you. For them, it was all about them. But for Paul, it was God-sufficient. To the Greeks, it was self-sufficiency. And Paul says, learn to be that way. See, I have learned. Uh, this is something, the word learned is a, an experiential type of thing. There's some things that you, have, that you might have read about. There's some things that you have seen other people go through. But the things that you personally have gone through, you have learned them. Amen? You might have learned what happened at 9-11, you might have learned what happened uh, during the tsunamis. You might have learned what happened when the earthquakes came or when the fires came. But if you didn't actually go through it, you didn't actually learn it. You didn't experience it the way I did. You didn't experience it the way that other person did. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and on, Paul says, you know, Praise God, our Father of all comfort and the God of all compassion, who comforts us in our tribulations so that we, in turn, can comfort others. You see, the things that you go through, sometimes it's not even about you. Please don't, don't I'm not trying to belittle what you're going through or what you've been through. But the things that you've gone through or are going through, it's not even about you. It's about how you can comfort others. You see, Paul had gone through all kinds of stuff. He, he was content. He says, you know, I've learned how to be, uh, to have a lot. I've learned how not to have anything. I mean, I started at the top. And, you know, in the world's eyes, he was a loser. He lost everything. He lost it all for this guy that they pinned up on a cross. Really? You, you lost it all for everything. You've lost your friends. You've lost your family. you lost all your possessions. You ain't getting none of that back. Paul says, I don't want none of that back. Because I got me something greater. He says, I have more. 
As a matter of fact, he tells Timothy, he says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That's all we need. Now, unfortunately, in this world, we have bought into the, the whole process of what's going on. And we get into this rat race that, you know, you, you know, the funny thing about the rat race, that even if you win, you're still a rat. And we get it all caught up in this wheel and we're rolling and we're running and we're running ourselves tired and ragged for more and more and more and more. Learn to be content. See, if we learn how not to worry and do not be anxious about anything, we know that God's going to take care of the birds and the fields. He's going to take care of us. And Paul says to Timothy, I, I've learned if I have food, if I have clothing, I'm good. And, you know, for, for most of us, we have a little bit more than that, right? We have a car. Some of you have two cars. You have a nice home. You have an air conditioner, I pray. You know, especially during the last month of, of the weather that we had, you were protected from the elements outside. You have food in your fridge, you know, and, and, and even though you have food, some of you are going to go out and get something to eat. You know, you have money to be able to buy something else to eat. You know, you, 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 you have, you know, but there's people, you know, two-thirds of the world, two-thirds of the world, would love, to be, would love to have your problems. Our garbage disposals, beloved, eat more than two-thirds of the world. We throw away more food than two-thirds of the world. We have so much that we just can't be content. We want more. And see, being content, it's, it's the double-edged sword for some. You know, okay, if I just have a little bit more, if I just have a little bit more, and it seems like the more you get, see, that's not contentment. That's, you know, I just need more. But the more that we get, it's elusive. In other words, it, it, it comes and it, you know, okay, I'm good now. I got, I got the house I want. I got the car I want. I got the job I want. I got the spouse I want. You know, but, but it's not enough if you operate in the world. And prosperity has done more damage to believers than adversity has. The more that you have, it seems like the more that you waste and the more that it just destroys you. Now, I know that I'm talking to a very affluent, and you might say affluent, really rich. Yeah, you're a very rich person. You are. If you're here today in this air conditioning place, you're very compared to most of the world. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, I live in a small bedroom house. A person on the other side of the world says, you, you live in a house? He says, yeah, you mean from the elements? You, you don't get rain or snow or cold or heat? No, no, we, I live in a house. You know, but it's a small house. It's only one bedroom. You have a bedroom as well in that house? You got a bedroom? He goes, yeah, well, you know, I'm not, I need to be private from other people. You got people? Really? Okay. And you're crying. Well, you know, there's just so many people. And, and I have to sleep on, on a, I have to share my bed with somebody else. Really, you have a bed. Up off the ground. Where the snakes and spiders and things don't get to you. Really? Wow. I'd love to have your problems. When we put it in perspective... Now, I don't know what's coming down the pike. There are a lot of things that they're trying to reset. A lot of things that the world is trying to do right now. They're trying to get rid of meat. They're trying to get rid of uh, gas. They're trying to get rid of all kinds of stuff. They're trying to put us in a position where we have to be dependent upon the world. Beloved, it would be so awesome just to know that you are content with what you have. Because when it hits, and it'll hit soon, and when it hits, when that great reset hits, it's going to cause such a, a consternation in people's lives. You think you're worried now. And any, no Bible verse is going to help you more than this to learn to be content. See, Paul says, I have learned. I, I want you to know, I, I appreciate the gift that you sent. You, you know, it was a great gift. And next week we'll talk about how Paul says, you know, it was, it, it's really more for your benefit. I'm, I'm excited that you gave me this gift because it's adding to your account. You, you know, and I'm in prison. I don't know what I can do with this gift, but thank you. I, I, I'm really, I'm overjoyed because it's going to bless you more than it's going to bless me. Paul's going to get beheaded pretty soon. Everything that he has, whatever it is that he has, it's going to be left behind. And Paul says, you know, this gift that you're giving me, his, their pastor, their missionary, their beloved, the person that encouraged them and preached to them and wrote to them and loved them. He says, it's best for you. And we'll see that next week. But we got to understand to be content. Number three, I need to understand the position God puts me in. I need to understand the position God puts me in. Going back to providence. Paul says, I know 
to be, I know how to be brought low. And then he says it again, I know how to abound. Twice he says, I know, I know. Now, now this is not just a, an intellectual knowledge. I've experienced this. I've gone through this in my life. You guys know this. You guys remember what happened in Philippi? You guys remember what happened when I got there? You guys, and, and if you remember the story when we first started in, in the book of Philippians, I shared with you what happened in the book of Acts. That Paul, when he goes to the book of Acts, he, he comes across these people. And one woman was saved, Lydia, uh, a dealer of purple goods. And then after that, there was a, a young lady that was following him around. And this young lady that was following him around was a, 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 like a, a fortune teller. And she made a lot of money for her, her boss and the people that would control her. And she kept going after Paul and going after Paul. And this is, these are people from the most high God. This guy, these guys here are very powerful. And, and she just kept screaming. And all of a sudden he just, you know, be quiet. Spirit come out of her and boom. She no longer was able to tell fortunes. Now that ticked off the people that used to make money off of her. And they threw him in prison. They beat him up. They kicked him out. I mean, the people in Philippi knew what Paul had gone through. And he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What are you doing under the circumstances? How are you doing uh, under the circumstances? Eh, I guess I'm doing okay. What are you doing under the circumstances? I'll say it again. Being under the circumstances is like being under a mattress. You're supposed to sleep on top of the mattress, not under the mattress. And if we don't learn how to be content, Paul says, in every and any circumstance, I've learned how to ride on eagle's wings. I've learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. He says, I've learned how to live in prosperity. I've learned how to be filled. I've learned how to be, be empty on gas. I've learned various things. In Acts 14, 19, this is not in your outlines and you won't see them up on the board, but you can write the, the verses down if you want. When Paul was out in his missionary journeys in Acts 14, 19, he says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Supposing that he was dead, they just left them there. And then in Acts chapter 16, verses 22 to verses 24, it says, it says there that the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrate tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had finished inflicting many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailers to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And there they were, him and Silas, singing joy, 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 joy everlasting. I would have been singing, woe is me. Oh, it's me. After all I've done for you, Lord, I can't believe that this is where I am. I ended up here. You know, it's, this is Paul. In Acts chapter 17, verses 5, and I'm just picking a few of them. Acts 17, verses 5 through 10. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Poor Jason. He was, Paul was just visiting there seeking to bring them out into the crowds. And, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city uh, authorities shouting, these men who have turned the whole world upside down. Well, praise God, because that's what we're supposed to do. Turn this world upside down. These men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also as Jason and has received them. And they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, this Jesus and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken the money as, uh, as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They're after you, Paul. See, God works things. He puts us in these situations. He puts us in these places. He, he gives us uh, this position that we have to stand in sometimes. You know, and I don't, I don't know how that comes. I don't know who gets the good positions and the bad positions or the tough positions and the soft positions? I really don't know. But beloved, the moment you stepped across that line, as I said last week, when you stand for Jesus, you're going to stand alone. You're going to stand alone. And depending on how you stand. And here at North Park, we want to teach you how to stand together as one. Because we don't want you to be alone. We know that the persecution is coming. 
We know that it's happening. And Paul says, you need to learn how to be content. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13, this is in your outlines, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted, in other words, beat up, and we're homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, or when cursed and, and whatnot and yelled at, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You know, if somebody were to slander, well, there was a time, that if somebody were to slander me, I'd start slandering back. If somebody were to revile me or start cussing at me, I, I would cuss back. If somebody started persecuting me or my family, I would start persecuting back. I mean, some of you probably said this yourselves, you know, <laughs> thank God I'm not the person I used to be, <laughs> right? But Paul is saying here, all these things happened to us. Yet we didn't retaliate because we learned how to be. See, Paul learned this by experience. He's just not telling us this. Some of you have learned some very difficult lessons in life. You have learned some things in life that would benefit the fellowship of the church. And this is why it's important for everyone to get involved and to plug in, not, not just on Sunday morning, but to really just join together and fellowship, and, and come to know one another, and, and come to find out, you know, you experienced that, I experienced that too, really? You know, what did you do? Or you come across somebody that had lost somebody. Now, our brother, Richard, just lost his grandson. Violent death. They just lost their uncle. She just lost her dad, I think. And now he's lost, you know, and this is just a matter of months. And, and I don't know, I'm sure there's some of you that have lost some loved ones, you know, but I don't know if you've lost them in that sense. I know that when I was, you know, in, in the past, I, I lost, I lost my, my cousin one day, my, my grandmother the very next day. During my grandmother's funeral, my uncle came from Texas, and on the way back, they were killed in a car accident. And then not long after that, not long after the funeral, my aunt, my grandmother's daughter that passed away, she died. It was just like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and, and so I understand the severity and the pain of it all. And, and I can minister to Richard and his family. You have gone through some very traumatic things in your life. And I just want you to know something. God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a hurt. He wants to use that for His glory and His kingdom. Because Paul finishes out saying this in this portion of uh, this point in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <laughs> That's how most people feel here. We're almost done. <laughs> For, you know, and again, not trying to belittle what you're going through, but Paul says they're light and momentary. In comparison to what he's been through, maybe so. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Last thing I want to share with you, understand the power of God. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse is probably one of the most taken out of context verses that we have. You know what? I'm going to take my test at school today. I can do all things through Christ to strengthen me. I didn't prepare, but I can do all things through Christ to strengthen me. You know, I've got this job interview, and you know, I don't even know if I'm going to qualify, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we use this verse out of context. Paul is specifically stating here of this contentment that he has with having nothing or having a lot. And he says, the only way I can do that is by the power, number four, understand the power of God. The only way that I can understand how to get through this information, all this stuff that you're going through, all these things, it's so that you know the power that God has for you. This power, this strength that Paul is talking about is not a strength to run a marathon. It's not a strength to endure difficult people. It's not a strength for, well, whatever, I can do all things. And everybody uses, throw this verse out. They throw this verse out. They take it out of context. And they're not even realizing that Paul says, well, can you be content? Can you really live without nothing? Because that is what Paul is saying. You can do that with the strength that is within you. Through Him, Jesus Christ. Through Him who gives you that strength. When we understand the power of God, we understand that it is Him that is moving us to be content in all things. Now, you want to use that verse 
for a relationship, a job, a school, whatever. You know, people do it all the time. They have it up on their wall. They, some people have bumper stickers on it. You know, I can get through this traffic through God who strengthens me. You know, but literally, if you want to use it in context, it's to be able to get through what you're going through in spite of all that's going on. No matter how difficult his struggles have been, Paul had a spiritual undergirding an invisible means of support. He had this power that he knew that he can tap into. His, his adequacy and sufficiency didn't come by his own strength. It didn't come by his own power. It came through a supernatural union that was sufficient in Jesus Christ. It was so powerful in him and it was so uh, just very visible in him that he would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. This is why I can go without. You know, all the beatings, all the stonings, all the left for deads, all the shipwrecks, the snake bite, everything. I can do that because I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And that is only going to go as, as far as my life goes. And then I'll be able to stand before Jesus Christ. And, and, and the life I now live, he says, I live in, faith, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 You see, we know how to live according to his word. He tells Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to the service. Going back to this service of being a pastor, of being a, 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 mission, missions, a missionary, a church planter, that's the word I was looking for, a church planter, a pastor, and everything he had to go through. Paul says, you know what, it's, it's a privilege, it's an honor to get beaten up for that cause. That he appointed me to this service with all the things that have gone on. He tells Timothy again in the second book of Timothy, but the, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The strength came to him. Not to get through the day, not to get through the traffic, not to be able to stand through lines and medical illnesses and whatnot, but to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the message, fully proclaim it. I shared with you here a few weeks ago that in China, if they catch you proclaiming the gospel, they'll take all your possessions away, throw you in prison. In, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, they catch you pro proclaim the, the message and they'll do it anyways. They know this. In Afghanistan and in the Middle East and the Arab countries, they catch you, they'll beat you up and throw you in prison and maybe kill your family. In the United States, you know what? I don't want to offend anybody. I don't feel comfortable, so I'm not going to proclaim the message. Something has happened to the U.S., beloved. Paul says, I'm going to stand there and I'm going to proclaim it as best I can. You see, he gives power, Isaiah 40. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths grow tired and faint, excuse me, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah had a confident understanding of who God was. Isaiah was hated by all the people. Isaiah Tradition has it at the end of his life was sought in two. And he says, you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do that. You see, when you use that verse in that context, in everything that you're going through, it starts to make sense. And so this is why Paul can say, don't, don't be anxious about anything. But in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And don't worry, worship. And here's how you worship. Think upon these things. Exchange the negative thoughts in your mind for the things of God. And guess what? You'll learn how to live with plenty and you'll learn how to live with nothing. This is not a message to have you get rid of everything. It's a message to help you be content with what you have and learn how to live with less. Because we're learning. It's happening. Things are costing more and more. More and more people are not able to afford certain things. More and more people are starting to lose things, stuff. And um, I, don't, I don't believe that a lot of the people see it. Let me ask you to stand.
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul had this solid, he had this unwavering understanding that he had met Jesus Christ and Christ changed his life. If you haven't come to that point of repentance as of yet, if you haven't come to that point of the encounter with Jesus Christ that has changed your life, beloved, you're going to continue worrying. You're going to be anxious about a lot of things. You won't be content about it. You can't claim this verse. You can't even begin to say, well, you God, I want to be without. You can't even do that with joy. You might be able to do it, and it might, be, it might happen to you. You may have been there already, but without Jesus Christ in the center of it, then it's not going to happen. Contentment, that is. Because contentment only, you know, in the, that the world gives only lasts for a moment. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He died on the cross for those that are His. He came to remove your sin and to put His righteousness on you. He wasn't going to leave you empty. He wasn't going to leave you blank. He didn't just take away your sin and told you, okay, go figure it out. But He took your sin upon the cross and His righteousness He placed on you. Now you have been made right before God. Now, either... You are righteous, you've been, you've repented, you've come to that point of repentance in your life, and, and you just don't get it, and you haven't figured it out because you're not supposed to. God is doing this through you, or you haven't really been born again. And being born again, being a new creation, the old stuff goes away and the new stuff comes in. And if you're still running around anxious, worried, discontent, angry, mad, you know, and all those other things going on in your life, you need to check yourself. See, because repentance is not an option. It's a command. Jesus said, repent. He didn't say, come forward and say a prayer and leave here with the same problems that you had. It's not a magical prayer that you pray. It's not a, you, you give your life to Jesus. It's not, you know, let Jesus into your heart. It's a transformation from old to new. It's radical. It's different. It's, it's a life that is pleasing God. And that's all you want to do is please God. You want to please God and you want to grow like Jesus Christ. Those are strong indicators that your life has been changed. How do I, how do I get closer? I desire God. I want to know God. And, and I want to be more like Jesus Christ because that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. He didn't come here to make you happy. But God wants me to be happy. No. He wants you to be holy. Set apart. And in that process, God will take you through the same process that He took Paul. Maybe not all the severity, all the severe things that Paul went through, but there's some things that got to come off because that's old stuff. It's the new stuff. Commit your life to the Lord. Repent right now and believe the gospel. Father in heaven, I thank you that you've made it so simple that we've, we've caused it to be difficult in our life. Repentance, we believe, some believe that it's a one-time deal. I did a long time ago. I have the Bible. The pastor wrote my name in it, the date. I have the card, the, that one-time event. And Lord, we know that it's, it's a genuine change of life that draws me closer to you and to your word that causes me to be more like Christ. As Peter said, to grow in the knowledge and in the grace of Jesus Christ. As Paul said, that we are to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That we are to be holy as you are holy, set apart. And in that pursuit of holiness, instead of happiness, we come to find out that that's the happiest place to be when we pursue your holiness. But we also know that when we pursue happiness, we're just never content. Holiness is far away. And I pray this morning for each one that is here that they make that commitment. As you pound on their heart and you open their heart and you change their lives. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the conviction of your word. 
And I pray, Father, that as we leave this place, that it resonates within our mind, in our head, in our heart. And that we recognize that contentment is a part of what you've called us to be, but difficult to do in this world. But as Paul said, we can do all things through you who strengthens us. Thank you, Lord, once again for this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen and amen. I'll be up here for a moment if you'd like to come up for a word of prayer. And um, we also have some coffee and donuts. Okay, we got donuts today. All right. That is the most important ministry of the church, the donut ministry. Thank you. <laughs>